Assassin's Creed 3 launched on October 30th of 2012 for the Xbox 360, PS3, and soon after for the Wii U and PC. It marked the first attempt by Ubisoft to deliver a full narrative-focused experience with, what were at the time, massive maps and action sequences. The game is set in 18th century America, specifically during the American Revolution from 1754 to 1783. Over the course of the game, we meet everyone from Ben Franklin to George Washington and help with various tasks to help ensure America's survival as a sovereign entity. We play as Connor, a half-British, half-Mohawk warrior who is hell-bent on revenge and is dedicated to saving his homeland. Now at face value, the game seemed to be more of the same that we had seen in the last four major releases in the series. However, this couldn't be farther from the truth. Assassin's Creed 3 added many gameplay mechanics and new graphical features that were previously unimaginable. Things such as rope darts, dual wielding, and hunting are the most obvious gameplay enhancements, while the new Anvil Next engine powered it all with astounding graphics. Better subsurface scattering, tree movements, and even snow compression all came into play in this entry. Now in this video we're going to go through all of the key elements of the game, specifically the narrative gameplay and the technical side of the game as well. We're going to look at all of these, but first I just want to let you know there will be spoilers mentioned pretty much for the entire story of Assassin's Creed 3, so if somehow you have not played it or are wary of spoilers, take this as your warning. But with all that said, let's jump right into it. Beginning with the narrative, Assassin's Creed 3 was the fifth major installment in the Assassin's Creed franchise. It its goal, according to the developers who made it, was to create a, quote, larger and more living and realistic world than anyone had ever seen, end quote. And, to be fair, they succeeded in this. At the time, the game's new engine and its capabilities were unparalleled, both in graphics and in its gameplay capabilities. I think it's also important to say that at the time, there were many technical issues as well. After going back and reading through the reviews for the game at the time, it's pretty clear that this game's biggest holdup was its glitches and also its pacing as a result of its ambitious scope, both of which we're going to return to later. Now the game's story is fairly simple. As with all Assassin's Creed games, there are two stories going on at the same time, a present day storyline and an animus storyline. We control Desmond Miles and we are, in the present day sequences, looking for a way to unlock and gain control of a precursor vault in order to prevent the world's destruction on December 21st of 2012. Now this may seem like a random plot device to employ, and you wouldn't be wrong to think that. That is because, to know why the game was written this way, you'll need to know what was going on culturally at the time of release. Assassin's Creed 3 is heavily influenced by the 2012 Mayan Doomsday predictions. If you aren't familiar with what that was, allow me to explain. Some people believed that the world was going to end on December 21st, 2012, because it was on or around that day that the Mesoamerican Long Count calendar allegedly allegedly would end. In reality, that was just the date that the calendar reset, much in the same way that ours does on December 31st. And even if the calendar did end on that day, I failed to see how that would imply that the world would implode, but regardless, some people believed it. Some may fail to see why this event was something that Assassin's Creed developers felt was needed in their game, and I would also be one of those people. However, it cannot be denied that an eschatological twist in any narrative raises the stakes, and as far as I can tell, that was the main reason it was brought into the game's lore. 
Now in the Animus, we control Connor, a half-English, half-Mohawk assassin who is both hell-bent on preventing Templar world domination and on revenge for his mother's death and the taking of his people's land. The modern-day sequences are the focus of the narrative, however, much to the chagrin of people like me. Now, I know this is going to come down to personal preference, but for me, the modern-day sequences serve as nothing but a frustrating speed bump in the game that I'm enjoying. Don't get me wrong, these sequences can be done well. Assassin's Creed Origins, Syndicate, and even Unity all struck a comfortable balance, but in Assassin's Creed 3, the modern day sequences take up a good chunk of the game and always occur at the moments when I'm most into the game's gameplay and animus sequences. Take this moment for instance. At this point I've been playing for roughly 5 hours and still haven't gotten to control a single assassin. Instead, I've been running delivery missions and playing as Connor's father, Haytham. However, at this moment I find out that I am officially an assassin. My hopes get up because I think I'm going to get to play as a decked out assassin's version of, well, Connor, but no, the game knows that I'm excited to play as an assassin and so it removes Desmond from the Animus and requires me to play through a 20 minute modern day sequence before letting me go back and play as an assassin. This may be picky, but all I'm asking for is to be able to play as an assassin in well, an Assassin's Creed game within the first six hours. At its core, it's a pacing issue. Back in 2012, when I first played this game, I thought pacing was the major problem with Assassin's Creed 3, and after playing through it again for this video, I am still confident in this conclusion, and allow me to explain why. When you launch Assassin's Creed 3, you don't begin by controlling the protagonist of the game. You play the first two hours or so as Haytham, who is Connor's father. After two hours, it's revealed that Haytham is actually a Templar, thus demanding the later mission where you inevitably kill your father in an anticlimactic, predictable fight scene. After this plot twist, you would expect there to be some shift in perspective, like to, oh, I don't know, the protagonist. But no, we take control of a 10-year-old Connor and are forced to play hide-and-seek with his friends. No, I'm not joking. Now, I know what you're thinking, Luke. We technically are controlling the protagonist. He's just young and doesn't have any of the abilities or skills that he'll have when he takes the form he is in on the cover of the game. And to that, I would say that if the character doesn't have any of the abilities, motivations, movesets, and combat capabilities as the protagonist, it is just as good as having us control another character entirely. It literally takes five and a quarter hours to gain control of a Connor that has even the basic assassin's moveset, weapons, and abilities that you would expect to find in an Assassin's Creed game. And bear in mind, that's assuming you're just doing the main quests and not doing any of the side content that's pushed on you. Almost a third of the game has passed and we still haven't gotten to play as a bona fide assassin. Now just contrast this with Assassin's Creed Origins which gives the player control of the protagonist instantly and starts the game by teaching you how to fight and then riding you through a portion of the game's massive open world. To be honest, the contrast is kind of drastic and these two games openings could not be farther apart. Now this of course begs the question, why did they design it that way? Clearly structuring five hours of consecutive gameplay sequences is an intentional and conscious choice. Why did they do it? Well, it seems fairly clear to me that the game was designed to be a narrative-focused title first, and a gameplay-focused title second. 
This is surprising to me and somewhat contradictory to what we see in the game, however. In the game, we see all new hunting and crafting mechanics, you can sail ships and engage in naval battles, you can manage a trading charter and collect and resell rare pelts from your hunting expeditions. There are entirely new combat mechanics that the series hadn't seen before. All of these are gameplay-focused improvements that were seemingly developed and then hidden behind hours and hours of mandatory cutscenes. Now, if you are not already aware, I am a big fan of narrative games. I love them. The reason that Assassin's Creed 3 is a little baffling to me is because it seems to be trying to do two things at once. For one, it's trying to be a linear narrative title in which you can experience the revolutionary war in an unprecedented way. On the other hand, it is trying to introduce close to a dozen new gameplay systems and mechanics to a game that was marketed as a sandbox. Now, some games can pull off both a narrative focus with engaging and complex gameplay. I would point to The Witcher 3, for instance. However, in order to do both, both must be polished, fun, interesting, and worth the player's time. While I think the gameplay loop is fun and engaging, I don't think that the story in this game is worth the attention the developers paid to it. It's painfully predictable, the characters are stale and uninspired, and Connor's voice actor is agonizingly bland. They had a real opportunity here, but they tried to fit so many historical events into Connor's path that it becomes so unbelievable and cliche, it's frankly hard to quantify. If they had let go and allowed the game's world and gameplay to do the talking, they could have really had something special. But nonetheless, Assassin's Creed 3 tried to balance the story and gameplay equally, and the developers tried to unify the two as best they could. But I don't think Assassin's Creed 3 achieves this to the extent that they wanted, at least before the credits roll. After the credits roll, you get to simply roam the world, hunting and sailing to your heart's desire. It's great, but before the player is forced to do this weird balancing act where they have to prioritize whether or not they want to finish the story quests or engage in the gameplay loop. Another way of explaining the issue would be simply to say that in order to achieve both a successful narrative and a deep engaging gameplay loop at the same time, you must overlay the two perfectly, make them work in tandem instead of in opposition. The issue here being that the narrative doesn't require or even suggest that you engage in most of the gameplay loops that make the game unique. There could have been some missions where, in order to earn the trust of a trader, you had to hunt a variety of animals with your hidden blade to preserve their pelts, or perhaps uh, a point in the main quest where you need a large heap of money to pay someone off in order to progress, thus mandating your involvement in the trading charter minigame that the game teaches you about in the first few hours. Point being, there are ways they could have tied some of these gameplay mechanics into the main quest. However, they resigned themselves to keeping the main quest as bland and unchallenging as possible. I was even able to get through the entire game without using the rope caster, a weapon they give you early on. You would think that if they give you a tool or weapon in a cutscene, it will be important. But no, you can completely forget about it because the game never asks you to do anything with it. There's no special assassination opportunities, there's no special moments in cutscenes where he uses it, it simply disappears. Now I know what you're thinking, it's giving the player freedom. Sure, you have a rope caster, but you don't have to use it if you don't want to. That's great. And to that, I would say that I agree with you. However, player freedom isn't always best for the player. Sometimes you need a little restraint and guidance in order to ensure that everything works properly. 
Point being, the narrative and gameplay are often at odds. Each prevents you from participating in the other, and that is a real tragedy. There's certainly fun to be had in the gameplay that Assassin's Creed 3 offers. Unfortunately, it's just hidden behind hours and hours of poorly scripted and predictable cutscenes. I will say though that after the credits roll, you should stick it out because there's a lot more game once you get past the narrative fluff. Now, this video is intended to analyze the various elements of the game and offer a modern look at a classic game. The difficulty in this task always lies in the fact that this game is approaching six years old. As a result, when you play the game on modern hardware, you can run into many technical issues that may not have been present at the time of launch. The other factor is that, well, who cares if there were glitches when the game launched on last-gen hardware. However, I can't let all of these issues go unmentioned, and so I will quickly run through all of the technical issues that I encountered on this most recent run of the game on PC. While playing the game with the newest drivers and most recent updates from Ubisoft's Uplay, I came across a litany of glitches and graphical artifacting. These issues ranged from cutscenes not loading, to loading screens locking up and causing the game to crash, to various characters having their hair flicker uncontrollably, to the ocean glitching out, all the way to the standard animation errors that you would come to expect from an Assassin's Creed game. There were also multiple times where a trailing mission, of which there are many, would behave very, very strangely. It was actually very eerily reminiscent to issues I encountered in my recent playthrough of L.A. Noir on my PC. My basic understanding of this issue, based on the quick research that I did, is that in many of these quests, the NPCs that you are following have their dynamic movement speed determined by your position and often by a measure of time that is taken through the actual frame Count. This may not seem like an issue, but when playing through these older games on newer hardware that can achieve absurd frame rates, the game can occasionally get confused and you'll end up with scripted events happening at the wrong time. I know that sounds very convoluted and confusing, and to be honest, it is. I don't really know why these things are happening, I can only guess based on my understanding of how these sequences work. Point being, there were many times while going back through this game where I felt like a self-flagellating Manichaean enduring great frustration and suffering for the sake of the playthrough. Just to give you an idea of how bad these glitches were in the ending hours of the game, I had to restart the entire game and sometimes my entire PC in order to fix various issues on average roughly three times every hour of gameplay. Apparently, playing on a console dodges most of these issues, and so if you're going to go back through this game, I personally would recommend that route. And lastly, I should also say something about the Tyranny of King Washington, the major DLC story expansion for this game. Now, when I saw the trailer for this expansion, I was so unbelievably hyped, it's hard for me to even explain. I am a huge fan of alternative histories. They're incredibly interesting, fascinating, and especially in the world of video games, it allows you to go into and explore realities that you could previously only imagine. This expansion was dripping and oozing with potential, however, it sucked. It didn't just suck, it was, and still is, broken. Allow me to explain. The DLC is broken up into three episodes, the infamy, the betrayal, and the redemption. Each of these are sold as separate DLCs, the first two are $9.99 US each, and the last broken episode is $7.99. 
At least they discounted it, right? Now the DLC introduces some new outfits and even grants Connor some superpowers. And based on the Steam reviews from players who were able to get the DLC to launch and properly activate, the first two episodes are actually pretty decent. Nothing fantastic, but they're able to shake up the gameplay loop a little, which, if you are really into the game, is a nice addition. However, the third episode is universally accepted to be broken to the point where you can't even launch it properly after purchase. I was going to go through these episodes and critique them as part of this video, however, after downloading the first DLC, it wouldn't even launch, which I think makes my point for me. All in all, the game is good and it offers a ton to do, but there were and still are many technical issues that prevent the player from actually playing it properly. Now this brings us to the overall verdict. At its core, Assassin's Creed 3 is an incredibly ambitious game, and therein lies its greatest flaw. By trying to give players a 15-hour main quest filled with cutscenes and big set pieces, they neglected to polish the individual interactions and also to frame and emphasize the gameplay, which was the game's true star. Simply, the game was too ambitious. They built a plethora of systems for players to enjoy, but didn't give players good opportunities to do just that, to use and enjoy the systems they had created. They wanted to provide a massive, engaging main story with large character arcs, but ended up with bland characters that lack personality and relatability. They wanted to deliver what was, at the time, a truly next-generation game, but they failed to polish it and eliminate the litany of bugs that plagued the game at launch and still do even to this day. And let me just say, I enjoyed my time with the game back when it first launched and also these last few weeks as I went through it again for this video. However, it's very clear to me that the developers have made leaps and bounds of progression in this franchise, and while Assassin's Creed 3 will always have a special place in my heart, I think it's best left in the past where it belongs.